0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye.
1: I'm Howard Dory, And I'm Jess Dory, And we host Plotting Through the Presidents. We take deeply researched, deeply irreverent dives into the myths, mysteries, and scandals of the men and women who shaped America.
2: Join us as we dive deep into topics
1: like... The undeniable ribs of Aaron Burr. The what now? And the odd feeding habits of everyone's favorite founder... John John Adams? Adams. Subscribe and follow Plotting Through the Presidents now to plot along with us.
2: Find out more at PlotPod.com.
1: It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary, to so the
3: sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War Premium Episode Number 7. After our quite lengthy discussion of cavalry during the war, we now change over to discussing neutral Spain, and how it was affected by the war that was going on around it. This is a topic that I started researching after a listener from Norway contacted me and wanted to discuss what was happening in Norway during the war, and the listener was asking a lot of questions that I straight up didn't know the answers to. So, the research began. And oddly enough, I found way more research material on Spain than on the Scandinavian countries. So that's why this episode is happening first. I like this topic a lot, and I think it is very underserved and general in generally available English literature. Because Spain did not actively participate in the war, it seems to be mostly forgotten in most of the writings, generally warranting only a sentence in most large histories. This leaves us with sort of a blank canvas where most people don't have a lot of knowledge of what was happening in Spain and hopefully I can start to fill in that picture for you today. This episode will actually start by discussing the events in Spain before the war, because I fear that, much like Ireland in the main episode this week, most people don't have a lot of background knowledge about Spain, other than maybe it was a giant colonial empire, and then it wasn't. While this is true, there was a vast number of reasons that Spain was no longer a giant colonial empire, and while we will not cover the entire story today although that could basically be an entire podcast by itself, we will briefly touch on some of the problems Spain was having in the years before the war. The truth was that Spain was never in a good position to enter the war, with any hope of profiting from it in any way. One of the fantastic sources for this episode is Spain and the First World War, Neutrality and Crisis, by Francisco J. Romero Salvador. And he has this in his introduction, and it seems appropriate to add here. Quote, the European conflict brought about enormous social and economic strains, which by strengthening the hand of the national bourgeoisie and working classes against the traditional supremacy of the land-owning oligarchies, altered the relations of forces in most countries. Food shortages, economic dislocation, social distress, scarcity, and inflation produced the political awakening and ideological militancy of the masses. Under these pressures, the existing forms of hierarchical clientelist and elitist politics broke down. The traditional governing elites found it impossible to put the clock back and return to the world of 1914." End quote. That's lengthy, there's a lot of big words there, but it sort of summarizes what would happen in Spain during the war. Many of the events in Spain during the war would lead directly into the Spanish Civil War, all the way up into 1936. That is how far-reaching the effects would be. We will not be discussing these later events during this episode. Instead, we will focus on three main questions. First, why did Spain remain neutral during the entire war? Second, what happened in Spain during this period? And third, how did these events affect Spain and its people in the post-war world, which then set it up for all these later events? Now, I'm going to fire off three quotes here to set up the rest of the episode, and hopefully give you some things to chew on while the rest of the episode plays. Here is Carolyn S. Lowry from her work At What Cost? Spanish Neutrality in the First World War. Quote, The belief that neutrality would enhance its status as a great power proved false, and the Spanish Empire ceased to have any influence. Even more powerless and divided, Spain emerged from the war a mere shadow of its former self. And here is Louis Aragustin, who was a Spanish journalist after the war, who would break down the war into three distinct phases for Spain. During the initial period of the conflict, it was followed as if it was a game, and people even placed bets on as a horse race. A second and critical period in 1915, when the Spaniards started to take sides, and the final and active phase was already evident in 1916 coinciding with the movement of agitation and mobilization around the neutrality question. End quote. Finally, I will close this lengthy introduction with a quote from the Spanish ambassador to Switzerland, who would say after the war that, quote, "...looking back on them, the war years, now they seem equally incredible, so fantastic and horrible were the things they brought in their wake, even to the inhabitants of the neutral countries." For through the screen of well-guarded frontiers, there seeped all the backwash of war. At one point, Spain had been by far the most powerful of the European colonial powers, with vast tracts of land in North, in North and South America, along with other colonies spread around the globe. However, by the turn of the 20th century, Spain was still recovering from losing the last of its overseas empire. In 1898, the country was defeated in the Spanish-American War by the United States, which moved Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines over to the control of the North American nation. This was just the last in a long line of defeats for the Spanish, brought about by their inability to keep up with the industrialization and modernization that the rest of the world was experiencing in the 19th century. This slow decline had resulted in a rather interesting political situation in Spain, where two political groups, the liberals and the conservatives, had basically agreed to jointly rig the elections that were taking place every few years. The elections were basically set up to allow what they called a turno pacifico, or peaceful rotation, whereby both groups would take turns being the one in power. They were able to accomplish this through voter interference and voter fraud on a scale that was simply massive, and it ran throughout the entire country. This was definitely not a good look for a democratic monarchy like Spain was supposed to be during these years. Another of the problems that Spain was experiencing in the pre-war years was around the military. Of course it was, we're talking about the First World War. The state of the army was critical once the war started, because it was on the basis of these measures that countries like Bulgaria, Italy, and Romania were brought into the war because of, of their military. However, Spain did not have a strong army in 1914. In fact, it was the exact opposite. What makes this complete deficiency interesting is that Spain was spending a lot of money on the military. In fact, it was spending 40% of its national budget on defense. This was a huge amount. If this money was not going into making the army a capable fighting force, then where was it going? Well, in fact, it was going straight into the pockets of the vast officer corps. Compared to other European armies, the Spanish army had a much higher ratio of officers to enlisted men, and those officers were paid extremely well in pre-war Spain. Overall, they took up 70% of defense spending. Because of this, since they made up so much of the army, and they made so much money, they presented a serious roadblock to any type of possible reform for the Spanish army. They would simply refuse to allow it to happen, and that was that. None of them wanted to give up their very lucrative status quo, and there was no way to really reform the army without starting with the officers. Another problem for Spain in the military sphere was that a good portion of the army, and most of the rest of the budget, was currently involved in trying to hold on to the only colony that Spain had left, Morocco. About half of Spain's troops were engaged in this area, and it was seen as impossible to pull them out when the war started. If they were removed, Spain would probably lose control, or what little control, it had over Morocco. The final problem that Spain was having before the war was how the general populace felt about the political situation. The best word to use would be apathy. The Spanish journalist would say, quote, Believe me, political apathy continues to dominate Spain, even raising the famous specter of war the professionals will not succeed in awakening political life in spain." End quote. A good example of this apathy is the fact that after the 1898 defeat at the hands of the americans, while there were economic problems associated with it, it didn't really create much reaction at home. There was perhaps slightly less faith in the monarchy than before, but not enough to cause any real change. This may seem like a benefit from when getting engaged in a war you know, having your people just sort of go along with things. But without being able to rally up a strong base of support like, say, the British did at the beginning of the war, the chances of the public quickly moving in the other direction increased. This would probably be precisely what would have happened to Spain if they would have entered the war, and unfortunately, it also happened to Spain when they did not enter the war. The decision of whether or not to stay neutral once the war started, in retrospect, seems simple. I just spent five minutes describing all the problems Spain was having, and it seems like a foregone conclusion that that's just where they would go, but really it was not so cut and dry in 1914. There are a lot of things that the Spanish government had to consider when looking at entering the war. One thing that is often forgotten is that neutrality does not just mean, you know, refusing from marching your armies off to war but instead it was about putting your country in a situation so that it did not favor either side, which is difficult. However, the Spanish leader, after considering the consequences of either action, still chose to not get involved. The big reason was economic and military weakness. What could Spain really contribute to either side that would make it an appealing partner? Remember, people had to want it into the war too. The apathy of the public also trended more towards neutrality. They just wanted to stay out of everything. On July the 30th, the Spanish Prime Minister, Eduardo Dado, would declare Spain's neutrality with the following message, quote, With great misfortune, war was declared between Germany, on one side, and Russia, France, and the United Kingdom, while the state of war also exists between Austria-Hungary and Belgium. The government of your majesty believes it should order the strictest neutrality of Spanish subjects, end quote. He would then go on to outline some of his reasoning behind this decision. Quote, We would depart from neutrality only if we were directly threatened by foreign aggression or by an ultimatum. Germany and Austria-Hungary are delighted with our attitude as they believe us compromised with the Entente. France and Britain cannot criticize us as our pacts with them are limited to Morocco. I do not fear that the Allies would push us to take sides with or against them. They must know that we lack material resources and adequate preparation for a modern war. Would not we render a better service to both sides by sticking to our neutrality, so that one day we could raise a white flag and organize a peace conference in our country, which could put an end to the current conflict? We have moral authority for that, and who knows if we shall be required to do so. End quote. This would set the stage for the Spanish situation for the duration of the war. In the beginning it would be easy. In fact, neutrality would be beneficial for the first few months. However, as the war dragged on out of its first year, the war rapidly changed from a positive to a negative for Spain. One of the common areas of discussion every time we have discussed a neutral country on the podcast is how some set of countries was coaxing them into joining or staying out of the war. So we should probably take just a minute to talk about what the other countries thought of Spain, and why they did not try to get Spain into the war, really ever. Before the war, Spain had experienced the most friction with Britain and France. Both of these countries had collaborated to dismantle what remained of the Spanish Empire in North Africa, before then coming to an accord with them later on. This had soured the relationship between the three countries, and had at one point even gotten Germany involved after Spain asked for their support. It was, of course, completely impossible for Spain to declare war on these two countries. Spain was economically and geographically isolated by these two countries, leaving it with very little wiggle room against them. When the war started, and especially when it did not quickly end, Britain and France started casting around for other allies to bring into the war, and from the beginning they did not completely shut Spain out of the conversation. But it was always extremely unlikely that they would put much effort into bringing Spain into the war willingly. The biggest problem for Spain was sort of the Italian situation in reverse, or sort of the same as what we will discuss with Romania later this year in the main episodes. And that was the fact that everything Spain wanted was French or British territory, which they were not prepared to part with just to get Spain involved. Spain just straight up wasn't worth the price. Because of this fact, getting the two groups of countries together would have been difficult. And regardless, when Italy entered the war, whatever small bit of use Spain would have been for its position in the Mediterranean went out the window. Italy was just better in every way. Therefore, even though King Alfonso was open to bring brought into the war on the Allied side, there was nobody willing to pay a reasonable price. On the other side of the coin, Germany never wanted Spain to enter the war. Instead, much like some of the eastern countries, Germany just wanted them to remain neutral. They pursued this goal aggressively and successfully throughout the war, and much of their strategy was simply to convince the people of Spain that their best choice was to remain neutral, and to convince the government of Spain that if they remained neutral, they could play a role in the peace talks when the war was over. They showed a willingness to do this already in Dado's quote that I uh, had above. This was an attractive opportunity to the leadership of Spain. The country was so far down the list of European powers at this point that just the possibility of sitting at the grown-up table was enough to sway the minds within the government.
1: I'm Howard Dory. And I'm Jess Dory. And we host Plotting Through the Presidents. We take deeply researched, deeply irreverent dives into the myths, mysteries, and scandals of the men and women who shaped America.
2: The only history podcast where you'll hear never before shared stories and details about Thomas Jefferson's deadly ram and the truth about John Quincy Adams and the mole people. Yes. So join us for our newest season, premiering February 13th, just in time for President's Day.
1: We're diving into topics like how the first third party in America was founded by murder.
2: Ah, murder.
1: The undeniable riz of Aaron Burr. The what now? And the odd feeding habits of everyone's favorite founder, John John Adams? Adams.
2: You make him sound like a vampire.
1: So whether you love history or you're lying to yourself... Subscribe and follow Plotting Through the Presidents now to plot along with us.
2: Find out more and dive into previous bingeable seasons at plodpod.com.
3: While neither side wanted Spain to enter the war, that did not mean that they completely ignored the country. In fact, they would both be active participants in shaping the Spanish public opinion. Over time, the country would split into two groups, one supporting the Germans and one supporting Britain and France. There were, of course, variations, but if we simplify it almost as much as possible, they can be split into the following groups. Those supporting the Germans were generally the clergy, army, aristocracy, landowning elites, upper bourgeoisie, and the court. On the other side were the regionalists, the republicans, the socialists, professional middle classes, and the intellectuals. The groups that supported the Entente all generally believed that some form of drastic domestic reform was needed, and they looked to French French and English societies for inspiration. Even though generally every group disagreed on what the changes should be, they all just agreed that something should happen. I think the best way to look at the two sets of supporters to simplify it even further was that official Spain supported Germany, while real Spain supported the Entente. One little fun fact before we move away from these groups is that many of the groups that supported Germany mostly just hated France instead of really liking Germany, which is always an interesting spot to be in and always something to keep in mind when talking about um, sort of political parties. Throughout the war, both sides came into Spain in an unofficial capacity and tried to increase their influence, mostly using Spanish newspapers. The Germans were by far the best at this, and would be in control of 500 newspapers during the war. These newspapers would all present German-leaning stories and messages, which sought to make sure that the country did not start leaning too close to the Entente. One of their tactics was to use Portugal, and the fact that it entered the war in March 1916 as a method of causing friction between the two countries. At this point in history, Spain and Portugal were not on great terms, so the fact that Portugal had already joined against the central powers gave the German newspapers a lot of uh, ammunition. This influence, which Germany had cultivated over the first three years of the war, really started to come in handy when they reintroduced unrestricted submarine warfare in 1917. Even the first, far shorter and less destructive, unrestricted submarine campaign in 1915, had caused some economic problems for Spain, since it disrupted some of their shipping. However, the campaign of 1917 would be far worse. By April 1917, 33 Spanish ships with 80,000 tons of goods had been sunk by German U-boats, and this caused a lot of pressure to be placed on the government by the Entente favoring public, by the, by the groups that favored the Entente. This strain would actually bring Spain pretty close to entering the war in its last year, although it did not end up happening. Most of the resistance was, you know, cultivated by these German newspapers who sort of fanned the flame as much as they could against entering the war. We are now at the point where we're going to dig into how Spain was affected by the war. And that conversation begins with the economy since it would see the most change and would also be the root of every other change that were to come in the future. Everything started off so well for Spain. After the war started, they even experienced something of an economic renaissance, because in an instant, almost all external competition vanished from domestic markets. Even in the countries where movement of goods to Spain was possible, like Britain or France, They were too busy using everything that they could get their hands on for the war. There was also a huge number of new markets available to Spanish goods, and as many countries in the fighting were now desperate to augment their textile, iron, shipping, and chemical industries, all of which were things that Spain could help provide. Almost overnight, Spain went from having a huge negative balance of trade to a very positive one, and money flowed into the country in buckets. Unfortunately for some citizens, this wealth was not spread equally among the entire country. The most industrialized areas, which were the northern and eastern regions, fared extremely well, while the agricultural areas saw very little of the riches. This caused a huge rise in migration from the countryside and into the city due to the economic conditions and general population expansion. Before the war, a large number of Spanish citizens left the rural regions and migrated to foreign countries every year. Most of them would go to the United States. However, the disruptions of the war had reduced this number by 75%, and this would continue to drop as the war went on. These people generally needed somewhere to go, like there just wasn't enough space for them, and so they had to go into the cities to try and find work. This migration was not really the problem, though. It would have probably been okay given the jobs that were created by the war. No, the problem was, with all this money, came massive, unstoppable, unrelenting inflation. During the war years, inflation in Spain was nearly off the charts. Maybe not, you know, modern day Argentina or Zimbabwe or Germany in the early twenties, but large enough to cause serious problems. It went from 107% in 1914 to 145% when the war ended. This meant that the actual buying power of money was cut in half or more. This inflation led first to shortages in critical goods, and then the cost of basic products like bread and potatoes started to rise, and quickly started to move out of the range where most ordinary Spaniards could afford them. Wages simply could not keep pace with the rising prices. And in many cases, the rising prices also closed many businesses to go under, which just then coupled rising food prices with rising unemployment. All of these problems, of course, hit the working classes the hardest, and as they became more and more unhappy with their situation, they began to focus their frustrations on the government. When the war started, the government did not really interfere with the economy. Why would it? It was doing fantastic. And when the problems started to manifest, they continued this course of non-action, and mostly just ignored what was happening. This may have partially been due to the fact that most of the higher governmental officials were among the groups greatly benefiting from the economic situation, even when inflation started to increase. As the situation worsened, though, it did eventually become evident that the war was not going to end soon, and the situation was not going to get better until it did. This led the government down a several-year-long path of trying many things to try and help the economy, all of which turned out to be failures. In December 1915, a new liberal government was brought into power, under the leadership of Count Romanones. Romanones seems to have good intentions, and over a year and a half that he led the country, many changes were made. But regardless, the situation did not start to improve. Throughout his time in power, Romanones would have to deal with German submarine campaigns, which were hugely detrimental to national stability. And this, coupled with all of the other problems, meant that big changes would be made in 1918. Overall, Romano's tenure was a failure, and in some ways it marked the transition between eras in Spain, as described by Francisco Romero Salvador. Quote, this is regarded as a crucial moment in the country's transition from elite to mass politics. The social and economic impact of World War I brought about massive economic dislocation and social distress that in turn generated unprecedented levels of public mobilization against the regime. Intertwined with domestic uproar, the country was polarized by the question of neutrality. Alienated from the ruling classes by its pro-allied stance, Romanones was not only the target of a fierce campaign to oust him but also presided over the acceleration of existing movements of social and political protest, end quote. By 1918, the sort of economic death spiral in both the city and the countryside put both locations at a position where they were undergoing barely contained unrest, and two groups outside of the government would rise to try and change these feelings and channel them into real movements for change. The first was the workers' unions, led by the Socialist Party, and the second was the military. Before the war, the various fringe political groups like the Socialists and the Anarchists were small and disparate groups, separated both ideologically and geographically. However, midway through 1917, with the war three years old, and the situation in Spain basically circling the drain, both of these gaps, ideologically and geographically, started to close between the two groups. The gaps were closing both because of the economic and political situation, in which coming together might be advantageous for both, and also because the numbers of both groups were growing. There was just a lot more people that were, that were in these two groups. In 1917, a congress of socialist leaders would vote to collaborate with the anarchists to try and bring about real governmental changes. These two groups were shortly strengthened by a revolt in Catalonia, where a large number of industrial and commercial workers had risen up in protest of the economic situation. This combination of factors presented the largest threat to the Spanish government in many years. By all of these groups combining and putting their numbers and their power into the united front, where basically they sort of threw away their own specific desires and just wanted change, some sort of change, they were able to legitimately challenge the state leadership. Even with all of all that was arrayed against them, Romanos and the Spanish government may have been able to contain the situation, if they had been able to count on the military for support. But, about that. As I discussed earlier, when the war started, the Spanish army was in a rough spot. Most of its budget went to supporting its overly large officer corps, And that budget started to be a serious problem when the economy started to go to hell. The government took the steps of beginning to investigate cutting out some of the officers as a money-saving tactic. This immediately ran into resistance from all of the officers, especially the lower ranks, since they were already feeling the economic pinch from the inflation. In mid-1916, the situation began to come to a head, and the groups of officers started to organize themselves into sort of unions. Which they called Juntas de Defensa. While they would claim to be created for the purpose of combating corruption and other lofty goals, really they existed to try and make sure that the officers continued to get a paycheck and maybe to try and increase it if possible. You know, that, that'd be great. In 1917, these groups were all emboldened by what was happening in Russia at this time because in that country, a large part of the revolution that was sweeping the country was being led by groups of soldiers, just like them. Eventually, King Alfonso felt that he had no choice but to order the war minister Aguilera to get them to disband. They were just too dangerous. However, instead of this happening, the Juntas doubled down on their behavior and presented the government with two manifestos. The first manifesto was less exp- the less explosive of the two, and here's a quote from it. Quote, the administration has not improved, and the army is absolutely disorganized, despised, and disregarded in its vital needs. One, in its moral needs, which produces a lack of inner satisfaction and stifles enthusiasm. Two, in its professional or technical needs, through the absence of military knowledge, which there are no means of acquiring, and through the lack of unity of doctrine to direct it, and the lack of material to carry out its ends three, and its economic needs, since officers and men are treated worse than in any other country, and are even worse than civilians in analogous circumstances in our own country. End quote. Oh boy. The second of the manifestos was far more ambitious, and in it the juntas demanded the release of a group of officers in prison, and demanded a guarantee of no future reprisals, and the recognition of the existence of the juntas by approval of their statutes, all of which had to be done in 12 hours after the manifesto was delivered. They also had one final demand. They demanded a new election, only this time it had to be a fair election of a government actually voted into power by the popular vote. This was a great little thing to throw in there because this got the military the support of those other groups I was talking about earlier, so now it was basically going to have to happen. The king really had no choice but to give in to these demands, and it was this moment that began the first steps to a takeover of the Spanish government by the military in 1923. The free elections did not really solve any problems. The government would be fairly elected, but it could not solve all the problems that the country was facing. In 1918, after yet more ships were sank by U-boats, Spain chose again to not enter the war even though Germany by this point was very much on a back foot, and in serious trouble after the failure of the spring offensives. When the war ended, Spain also did not get its wish of playing an arbiter role in Europe. Instead, in 1918, it was not even involved in the settlement, not even earning an invitation to Versailles for the discussions. Instead of upping the country's prestige as hoped, the end of the war just proved that once again that it was a second-rate power, and that it just did not matter on a European scale. With even this possible positive rub from the country, the war proved to be a complete and unmitigated disaster for Spain. Even though it did not participate in the fighting, it found itself a casualty of the war. The fragile economic and political situation that Spain was in before the war simply could not withstand the strains of being on a continent that was tearing itself apart. At the end of the war, Spain was still made up of groups that could only agree on hating the former government and all vestiges of it, and could not even come close to agreeing on the best way forward. This was a recipe for infighting and instability, as the groups strove with each other for dominance. Through all of the instability of the last year of the war and beyond, it would be the power of the military that would be able to stand firm. It had proven that it was above the king and the previous government, and soon it would prove that it was above everything. Unfortunately, and I'm not sure entering the war would have been any better for the country, but it could have been substantially worse. Spain did not have a good course of action. In a situation with a long European ro- war, all roads for Spain, I believe, led to disaster. The only way to have changed the situation would have been to go back in time before the war, probably back into the 19th century, and find a way to put the country on a completely different course. Unfortunately for the citizens of Spain, the end of the war did not mean the return of some form of stability. Instead, between 1918 and 1923, there would be twelve separate governments and three parliaments that would come to power and then fall. A post-war Moroccan crisis, which saw the last of Spain's colonial holdings leave, would be a hard hit as well. By 1923, the calls of the military, still the only steady group in the country, would take over the government. Unfortunately, once again, this still did not bring stability back to Spain, and it would just be the beginning of a new two-decade series of instability and warfare as the various groups within the country continue to jockey for supremacy. I hope that this has given you a bit more insight into Spain as a country, and how the war could affect those that did not even participate. The next premium episode will look at what was happening in some other neutral countries, mostly in Scandinavia, where they were weathering the storm much better than their Iberian cousins.